Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thanks for joining us. We have a great guest in store to make it worthwhile. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi again, Alan. Hey, good morning, Fred. Good morning. This is edition 200, by the way, Alan. <laughs> really? I mean, and we're still we here. Been, what have we been doing? Can you imagine we've doing something 200 times? Well, we are happy to have with us in this special edition, Edwin Olson, CEO and co-founder of May Mobility. Thank you for joining us, Ed. Hey, good morning. Great to be here. So nice to have you. Well, let's start out with some background for our audience, Ed, about you and May Mobility. Yeah, so I'm an engineer by training. I first got bit by the autonomy bug back in the DARPA Urban Challenge. I was uh, lucky enough to be there in 2007 on MIT's team. And, you know, that was a really, really exciting moment for the industry and the technology. And we saw cars interacting with each other for the first time. Uh, after that, I, I, went, I became a faculty member myself at the University of Michigan in the computer science department, worked on Ford's autonomous vehicle program before becoming co-director of autonomous driving at Toyota Research Institute. So been doing autonomous vehicles for quite a while. But what really led to May Mobility was the realization that a lot of what we take for granted, robo-taxis, uh, are not actually the best application of AVs. And so talking to city transportation planners, became really clear to me that there was a huge potential for us to build shared ride services that could increase access and equity to transportation. And that's what we set out to do in 2017 with the founding of May. And May Mobility is, is, is out there now. So tell us, tell us about the progress that you've been able to make there. Yeah, we have a, a pretty different approach to building it, uh, building the technology and when to launch it. So we believe that getting out and working with customers early in the process is a great way to learn about the needs of our riders, to learn about the needs of our customers. And for us, our customers and riders are not necessarily the same people. The riders might be uh, people who live in a city where the buyers might be transportation departments or enterprises. So learning what their problems are, learning how we can solve them, and then getting our vehicles out there where we can learn about operations and how to keep the vehicles clean, how to keep them charged, and also, of course, figuring out where the technology works really well and where we need to make additional investments. So that approach has really guided what we've done since the founding of the company. We have over 270,000 revenue generating rides uh, and more revenue than I think uh, any of the other major AV players. And I think that's a reflection of our emphasis on getting out there with the technology that we have today that works and letting it grow over time. Where are you today? Today, we have launched in uh, Detroit, Columbus, Ohio, Providence, Rhode Island, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, some of those have, have wound down. And later this year, in the next month, actually, we'll be launching in Higashi, Hiroshima, Japan, and Arlington, Texas. So as of today, we, we have 15 vehicles under contract, and we expect that number to grow significantly. And a few months back, you announced a partnership with VIA. How is that going to work and, and what will that mean for your growth? Yeah, that's a great question. 
we think that it's really important for autonomous vehicles not to uh, replace everything that's in the city, but to be a complement to other transportation services that are available. And clearly there are routes that we can't serve today because our technology can't do everything today. So partnering with, a, with VIA has allowed us to serve the routes that we can while integrating really easily for our riders with other transportation modes that are available. And that's been a really great partnership. VIA has been great to work with, uh, shout out to them. And you recently announced a, a new shuttle platform using the Lexus RX450H. Takes you back to your Toyota days, I guess. <laughs> it does, it's a beautiful car. You know, one of the challenges that we have, you know, operating is hard. Uh, you know, it's, and there, there are times when it would be a lot easier if we uh, just had a fleet of vehicles and you know, enough PhDs to keep the vehicles up and running. And that's all we had to worry about. But operating and maintaining a fleet of vehicles in the wild with everyday people and salt, and if it's raining out, you're still gonna go out. Um, if, you know, vibrations, knocking sensors loose, reliability become, starts to become a major issue, an operational issue. So what we're excited about with the Lexus RX450H platform is that it is auto-grade, that it's going to be vastly more reliable and it's going to provide a better ride experience for our passengers. Well, you work with manufacturers, you work with uh, government agencies, transportation departments. So tell us what the roadmap looks like for the future and in, in terms of pulling the safety drivers. Safety drivers are, are a part of what you're doing today. Yes. So tell us, tell us what's next. Yeah, so clearly the economics get a lot better on a per vehicle basis when we can remove safety drivers. But there are a few things that need to happen. The technology needs to be ready. And of course the technology is kind of on a sliding scale. There are ODDs, operational design domains, where we think the technology is good to go. Waymo has demonstrated that this can be done, uh, will be shortly behind them. Uh, so the technology needs to be there. That's sort of checkbox number one. The vehicles need to be there. We need to be in vehicles that are fully redundant and have redundant drive-by-wire systems. That is not a capability that most, most AV platforms have today. And so we need to wait for those vehicles to be available. And of course, we need uh, updated regulatory environments. And there's a huge amount of pro positive momentum here with states, whether it's the, the state legislatures or state executives with executive orders, creating frameworks for vehicles to operate. And so when those ingredients start coming together, you'll start to see more and more operations without safety drivers. And for, for our strategy is to be ready, ready to go when those conditions are all met by getting into market early, building those relationships, having our vehicles in place and being ready to, to expand. Any thoughts yeah, about the time frame? So the time frame, uh, the technology, as I mentioned, I think there are ODDs where we could operate today. And I think the next uh, year or two will be transformative in terms of the vehicle availability, vehicles with redundant power steering, redundant actuators. Uh, in the regulatory environment, there are already states, of course, today where you can, can operate. And I think it'll just be a larger and larger palette. So bottom line answer, uh, I think that those ingredients for us are going to come together in a significant way in the next year. And, and um, a couple of things along those lines. One is um, ODDs. Um, um, I guess 
I've sort of picked up and, and, and want to really describe ODDs to be not, um, not geofenced areas, <clears throat> but, um, but basically network fenced areas. Uh, in other words, um, what is the subset of the roads in a particular geographic area that one can operate on? And, and to me, I, uh, maybe that's a detail and everybody that works on it realizes that in fact, one is going to be talking about subnetworks. It's, it's not everywhere within a geographic area, which somehow, I don't know, maybe that's what the public thinks. And, and, and of course, uh, because, because that's, that's just, I, I don't see that that's where we go. Uh, secondly, within that, um, uh, yes, it, it of course is important to be talking to those that, that provide mobility in a particular geographic area. Um, I'm wondering if, if it's not really important to know that the customer in fact is the person that's riding in this thing and you have the most experience in providing to those customers. And, and in fact, um, what is it that those customers want or could have or would appreciate or would, would value as opposed to necessarily those that, that are out there providing that? I don't wanna suggest that those that are out there providing that don't really understand their, who their their customers are, but my goodness, you have you, you've had the opportunity to to understand what those that really can value your mobility, as opposed to have it as uh, you know one of fifteen different ways to get from A to B. I'm, you know, I've gotten to a point where you know this multimodal stuff. It just kind of gets me. I mean, you know, it's great for us that already have 12 ways to get from A to B and so on. But what about the folks that, that don't even have one? Um, and, and, and maybe it's, it's in fact, we start to serve them really first and focus on their needs. What, what is it that you've learned about that, uh, them and to approach them, you know, long question that I've yeah. had trouble to, but, but slightly different, go ahead. You know, we've been fortunate enough to work with partners uh, or our customers, enterprises and cities that know where there are transportation needs. And that's really important where people are being underserved or where there are limited access to transportation, uh, whether you're able-bodied or need special accommodations. Um, and yeah, that's Columbus that's, and uh, you're, you're at work in Columbus, you're working in Rhode Island. You're, uh, I mean, you, you are, it seems to me that you different than maybe some of the others, instead of focusing on, you know, what people in San Francisco need, which I think, never mind. Um, uh, you know, you're, you've been out there where, where people really can use this mobility um, or do I have a right to, view of all this. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we'll go wherever need is. And of course, people in San Francisco come in all, all levels of affluence as well. And we want to, to help there as well. I, I, absolutely. I do, yeah, don't get me wrong on that one, but yeah, yeah, but go ahead. But in a lot of these routes, the existing transportation services are, uh, it might be a single bus that comes by every hour. Great. Oh, that, oh, man, that's good transportation. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm being cynical here. Yes, go ahead. In case people don't no, realize it. What comes by every hour um, 
you know, and again, this isn't this isn't a the fault of the transportation planners. They have a limited set of tools to choose from. Yeah. Most of them have buses. Uh, some have no buses at all, like Arlington, and a few lucky ones have subway systems that they can build into their systems. But when you try to take a bus and apply it to every transportation problem, especially where you have lower demand density, you end up with very, very poor service levels. And what that means- You need a lot of money to be able to get a decent service level. So where do you end up because you don't have the money? Uh, exactly what you said. Yeah, if you have a $750,000 bus asset, uh, mm -hmm. And you can't afford to take it out where it's only going to have two people on it. Yeah. So the solution Obviously. to the <laughs> is to run the bus less frequently uh, so that you can hopefully fill it up a little bit more and make better use of that asset. Uh, this is just the pickle that they're in. Now, the thing that's really exciting about what we, what we do is that these shared, smaller shared ride vehicles that we, we offer can dramatically reduce the average wait time, can dramatically reduce the average trip time, especially as they move off of fixed routes to more point-to-point -point routing. And to an average worker who used to look at a, a bus service on their commute that, that only operated once an hour, both there and back, we can shave hours off of their life, uh, off their commute life, and have, let them put that to better use. More time with their kids, more times on the clock, bringing in more, more money for their family. There's a huge amount of opportunity here and the thing that really excites me is that it's autonomous vehicles that make that possible. It changes the economics of being able, being able to provide this faster, more responsive, more joyful service that we can actually do that and fit within the transportation planner's budget. And, you, can, and you don't have to do it just for the work trip. You can do it if you wanna to go to synagogue or if you wanna to go to the library or if you wanna to go to soccer practice or if you wanna go shopping or if you wanted any of those things right <laughs> because 24 7 is no problem is it really there's a really interesting thing that happened in our operations in detroit which started as a a parking shuttle and you know a lot of the people who ride our services are hourly workers and you know the reality for them is that if they are late uh three times they can be fired you don't punch that clock. You're you're gone, right? That's right. Not like us. Not like us academics. I don't want to. I don't want to suggest what what how we behave as academics. Of course, Ed. You don't. I'm. I'm go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm always on. Uh, uh, but this is the the life that a lot of people live, where being late, being underserved by transportation, is not merely an inconvenience. It's not we pull out our phone and we complain to our best friend and, and uh, write a snarky Twitter <laughs> post. It means you're out of a job. And yeah. that, that sort of reliability is, is critical to them. So one of the cool things that happened in Detroit is after operating for about a year, we started to find new use cases popping up. The same group of underserved people started using our shuttle to go to lunch. Before, that was unthinkable. Who is going to risk their job by relying on a bus that might come along every hour and risk being late getting back. But when you can provide a reliable, safe, comfortable, comfortable transportation service, people will go and do new things, which is good for them. It's good for the local businesses. It drives the economy. And that's something you can achieve with, with real vehicles solving real transportation problems. You know, and one of the things that I, I love about what we've done in Detroit and Grand Rapids is that this is not a service that's available to a few early access rider programs, uh, you know, affluent uh, people who, you know, have access. 
this is open to anyone. And one of the things that happens that's really cool is we get regular riders. There are people in Grand Rapids, Michigan and Detroit, Michigan who have ridden autonomous vehicles hundreds of times. And the fact that it's autonomous blends into the background and becomes the new normal. And we get to understand how this changes the way that riders and, and the buyers think about transportation. And that's, that's exactly why we're in market today because we can start to understand these things. And I think that's where some of the companies that are waiting for their grand entrance when they've solved the full autonomy problem, I think that's where they're missing out. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I think it gives you an enormous uh, market opportunity here <clears throat> because as I look at, the, for whatever, I look at the, at the marketplace for mobility in the U.S., uh, you 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 want you want the repeat customers. You want the people who who all of a sudden end up really depending on you because you can deliver, as opposed to people somewhere like me. You know, I'll either take you to leave you, and if you don't absolutely uh, uh, perform perfectly, I'll blow you off. I mean, you know, and in a sense, guess who? There are more of the others than there are me. Hopefully, there are more because aren't, aren't too many jerks out there. And, and, and in fact, uh, you know, when you actually look at it, if you're in the business of doing that, where in fact you are going to feed your family based on the number of person miles you deliver, as opposed to who knows what miles, then guess what? You have a better market opportunity. It should be better for your company. <laughs> your, you know, investors should look much better at you than they look at some of these other guys. Well, Alan, you talk uh, often and been very active in, in developing community acceptance for this. And I guess that you're doing it by word of mouth, I guess, to, to a great extent. And that's going to make it easier for you when the time comes to say, hey, we don't need the safety driver. You know, we, we build these relationships over time, which I think is, is really important. We're building trust with the riders. You know, uh, our, our passengers, our riders who have ridden our service a hundred plus times don't care in the least that it's autonomous anymore. And that's, that's what's gonna happen, right? Uh, the fact that the vehicle service is autonomous is going to be an implementation detail. Its value is not that the car is autonomous. The value is that we can provide a service that helps people get around better. And that's, that's really important. And building, letting people see the, the, the way that what we do can benefit their life in a real and tangible way is not only helps us feel good and win contracts, but it also in the long term makes, helps us win what I call the battle of the finger. In five years, people will pull out their phone, they'll have multiple transportation options. Maybe it's a Waymo, maybe it's a cruise, and it's a May. What's going to cause their finger to come down on the May button? And it's going to be the experience that they have in our vehicles, our better understanding of how to make these vehicles wonderful to ride in, uh, something that they have trust and confidence in. And yes, that's technology, but it's also operations. It's also the rider experience. The other angle I'll mention, because I'm talking a lot about access uh, and equity in transportation, which are hugely important. But one of the problems we have is stratification in transportation systems. There are today generally transportation systems for the affluent, uh, our personally owned vehicles or Ubers, and the transportation for the rest. The mayor of uh, Bogota, Colombia had this great quote, which I, I really love. Alan, I don't know if you've heard this before. A city is successful not when the poor drive to work, but when the rich take public transit. That's the transformation that has to happen. If we have a, a two-class two system for transportation, the, the 
equity is never going to, to come, right? It's always, they're always going to be underserved people. And so part of the challenge that we take for ourselves is to not just provide the transportation to everyone, but to make it so darn good that people who can afford to, to do something else will choose to take May anyway. How do you build a transportation service that's so good that Alan, who has a personally owned car and can hop in there, he says, ah, screw it, I'll take a May, it'll be better. That's, that's what we're building. And no, it's, I, it's not just the technology, it's the operations, it's the rider experience. I, I, I agree with that 100%. And you know, I keep saying here, look, my wife and I, we have two drivers in the house, we have four cars. I mean, you know, this is like stupid, okay? It is just, I mean, we don't have the cars. And, you know, plus the pandemic, I've never left the house. And if I did, my office is, is I, my wife walks to work, I walk to work, what the hell do we need those things for, in some sense. But, but, but it's really the case in which the mobility is there that, in fact, the that is available to everybody. And, and you know, I, I always use the elevator analogy because an elevator, hey, I don't know there are cables there. There's certainly not an operator there. The darn thing, oh my goodness, damn door opens. I just press a button and it leaves all by itself. I don't know what's going on in there, how much AI, deep learning, who knows what. Can you imagine all the stuff that must be in an elevator, deep learning, LIDARs, and who knows what? Who knows? You know, it just it, it takes me to where I want to go when I want to go, and it's available when I want to do it. That's what horizontal mobility should be, and I think that that's what you're focused on trying to bring to cities. The really the you know the just for everybody to use, not to say oh no you're not good enough or no you don't have enough money in your pocket or oh no I mean you know right. Absolutely. And I think another way of phrasing that is that for a lot of, a lot of people in the industry, autonomy seems to be the end, right? That that's the thing that they're excited about. They'll roll out. It'll be flashy. It'll be exciting, but that's not the end. Autonomy that's not the end. No. the end. And the end is the equitable, accessible, uh, joyful to use transportation system. And, and understanding what the, those end customers may want. And in some, some sense, I, again, I'd, I'd like to suggest, don't ask me, because I, I don't know. I mean, I've been, I've had such last, whatever number of years of my life, at one point in my life, I, I had to walk and hitchhike wherever I, I wanted to go. But, you know, in my, in whatever I can remember since I'm so damn old, I've, you know, I've had a, I've had a great, you know, I've forgotten all those hard times, but you know, I, we really, I think, need to understand what it is for those folks. I think that in all of this technology that we're all working on, we can bring it to them. We should, we should do that. And by the way, those of you that have a whole lot of different ways to go, they, we won't mind having you too. You know, it's not that we're not doing that for the one percenters, but it, it, it shouldn't be focused on the one percenters. My. Absolutely. We'll be back with more, but uh, first, this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. To get more info, head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, check out a white paper. It's titled The Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Some great information there to help you make informed decisions about investing. ETFs uh, can be a smart way to spread risk with your investments. You probably know that and focus on a particular category of stocks. So the site, once again, is MOTOETF.com. 
www.maymobility.com. We are back with Ed Olson from May Mobility. Ed, how has the pandemic over the last year affected your operations there and, and the progress? Has there, has there been much of an impact? Uh, there was a huge impact. So the vehicles that we operated back in March of last year were very small vehicles. Uh, it was physically impossible to be six feet away from the safety driver. And so we suspended operation on most of our, all of our routes uh, when COVID, when the magnitude of what COVID was became apparent. Uh, but one of the things that we did is we kept those conversations going with our customers. And 133 days later, we put into commercial generate, revenue generating operation, a clean shuttle. It's the same vehicle, but with now partitions internally that separated the air systems for the driver and the safety driver and the occupants, HEPA filters, uh, hydrogen peroxide fogging systems and ultraviolet lamps that disinfected the vehicle between every ride. So we launched that in Grand Rapids, Michigan in September of 2020 and the riders love it. As it turns out, the Grand Rapids route shadows an existing bus line. And so it's really easy for us to get comparative information about why did you choose the bus today? Why did you choose a May today? Because they, they provide uh, substitutable services. And what we found is that there are people who don't feel safe riding a bus. They might be immuno, uh, immune compromised or have other underlying health, health conditions, uh, or they're just more comfortable uh, in, in one of our vehicles. And we've been able to serve that population in a way that that is really fantastic. Uh, our, our rider satisfaction is, is off the charts, 90 plus NPS. And it's, it feels really good to be able to be part of a transportation solution that's really helping people. Now, how, how expensive was it to do that? And do you see this as a more or less a, a permanent type of change in, in terms of the way vehicles are, are put out there? Uh, I guess the, the happy side on the cost is that uh, autonomous vehicles are not inexpensive. So adding some plexiglass and some filters uh, doesn't substantially change the bill of materials price. Uh, so the short version is it's, it's a small price to pay to serve, service our customers better and to address their needs. And we'll continue to offer that as long as, as that's what our riders are asking for. And when, they, when people are more comfortable, we can take them out. I think that's a really important point that you make when you look at the amortization of those fixed charges that you ended up additional fixed charges you have to put on there. In fact, when you distribute it out on the cost per ride basis over the life, whatever it turns out compared to everything else, it's pretty darn small. And, and certainly if, 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 if this is going to be the new normal, the opportunity to do that at the beginning of the process rather than as a retrofit process, again, makes it even smaller. You know, the, all the ADA requirements for ramps or elevators and so on, just go to Washington Metro and ask them or New York City subway systems, uh, ask them about those things. Retrofitting is infinitely expensive. Doing it, you know, as you're designing is almost trivial, right? Uh, and, and we are still at the beginning of this. And if this ends up being the new normal and the kinds of things that we need in there, Yes, uh, because in fact, as you say, you know, the other things that make sure that these things are safe and the ability to pull the driver so that you can really get the variable costs uh, down on these things is, is uh, non-trivial and uh, 
and uh, yes, you said it. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. So in terms of uh, uh, a long-term impact with the, I'm not just talking about with May Mobility, but the public perception that shared rides, forget about it. You know, who, who wants that going, for, going forward? You seem to think that uh, there are ways around it that people can be accepting of this. Uh, absolutely, riders will accept it. Uh, they accept our vehicles enthusiastically. Uh, there are headwinds though. So, you know, part of the, the cost per ride goes up when you can't fit more than one person in your vehicle at once for, because of COVID and, and safety concerns. And so, you know, it is, it's important for us to understand why we're transporting people in the first place. And, you know, think about it, that these are people getting to their jobs. It's people picking up their kids from daycare. And so, you know, even if the cost per passenger mile goes up because we're providing the safety that our riders need, it can still be a worthwhile investment for our customers. Now, is May Mobility strictly in the, in the people moving business or are you looking at, at deliveries, goods, et, et cetera, as well? I would say that we're in the business for people. People is the, 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 the reason we do this. People are the people, uh, it's people's lives that we're out to improve and to, to provide better uh, services and equity and transportation to. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that doesn't preclude us from carrying other, other kinds of traffic. You know, typical problem that you might expect is that if you provision a fleet for peak traffic at morning and, and evening, you know, if you remember when there was rush hour, uh, that means you probably have a surplus of, of capacity in the middle of the day and off peak. And so we're certainly open to figuring out how to ma make best use of that surplus capacity. Uh, but for us, if we can do that in a way that makes people's lives better, uh, that's really compelling. You touched on some of these things before, but what are some of the advantages that a company like May Mobility may have, of course, from your perspective, over the big names, you know, Google and Amazon and everybody else who's, who's gotten involved here, GM? You know, there's a kind of a thought that I think uh, that, that we see expressed often in the industry that you can make a winner by putting enough money into it. And the billions of dollars that have gone into uh, some of the other AV companies, I, I think the right way to look, look at that is what did they get for that investment? How much money in, how much capability, how much business, how much viable business out? And so one of the things I think we have going for us at May is that we are, are extraordinary in terms of how efficient we've been in terms of allocating resources and growing a business and growing our technology. Uh, our technology is, I think we have the best planning software in the industry. I think our, our, the rest of our technology stack is competitive with the rest of the industry as well. And we've done this on between two to 4% of the capital investment of other companies. And part of that is our focus on solving real world problems, which keeps us laser focused on the, exactly the right technology problems uh, that, that get us into market. But the other thing that really is different about May is the, the technology that we use. So the technology in our vehicles is radically different from the kinds of systems that I've built in the past uh, working on other projects and that I, that I think other, other AV companies are using. And one of the biggest problems that we've, we've all talked about is, is the problem with edge cases. You build your system, you put it out in the world and it does something wrong. Now the question is, how much does it cost you to fix or improve the behavior of that, that system? And how many of those edge cases are there going to be? 
Well, our system approaches, our, our technology approaches this problem in a pretty different way than most other systems. We don't have, we're not comparing the situation that we see right now to a bunch of scenarios we've seen before. The problem with that approach, which is kind of the obvious thing to do, is that if you come up on a new scenario, you don't necessarily know what to do and you end up with an edge case. For us, we have a, a different technology called multi-policy decision-making, which allows us to view every situation as a new situation. And it's based on online simulation, thought experiments that project 15 seconds into the future, what's likely to happen? Not just where are people likely to go, but how is what I do likely to influence and change the behavior of that pedestrian? And how's that pedestrian's behavior then going to affect that bicycle? And how's that bicycle's new behavior going to affect the, the cross traffic that I'm waiting to cross? So that sort of, of coupling, it, that's where the complexity in autonomous driving comes from, trying to understand all the interplays between agents and approaching this from a scenario-based uh, strategy just doesn't work. You move a pedestrian a little bit, move the car back 10 meters, and you get a different set of interactions. That's where our capability to understand each of these situations the first time we see it has allowed us to be vastly more efficient. It literally means that for every engineering dollar we invest in our technology, we get more autonomy capability out because our system inherently generalizes better. That's why we've been more effective in, in producing the technology. It's not, we have a really smart team, but we're not magicians. We have an approach that I think scales better due to having better generalization performance. And so this is software, this is coding. Uh, do you have partners on the, on the hardware side, et cetera? So for us, we, we really take a, a top to bottom view of the safety. It's important for us to understand how the safety case is guaranteed all the way down to the, the, the tires meeting the road. But where our team is the strongest is on the software, on the autonomy and operations side. So we are, are delighted to work with our partners. Uh, Toyota led our Series B. Toyota is a great partner. Uh, and we have a lot of other partners like Via that we talked about before uh, that help us scale and expand our services faster than we would be able to by ourselves. Yeah, I, I think the sort of uh, a little bit along the lines that you were going, I think the, you know, with respect to the, the edge cases, the, the other, you know, the, you can you can avoid some things too. You you can set, decide that maybe you <clears throat> you aren't going to uh, address this. I mean, to me, that's why the you know the the subnetwork aspect of of geofence theory is so darn important. Everybody wants to focus on wants to focus on where there's there's road work going on. Mm -hmm. uh, my goodness, best thing to do about road work is avoid it. You know, seriously, I mean, really, have you have you uh, basically uh, painted yourself into a corner such that you have to go through this really, you know, difficult thing uh, when, in fact, you could provide a, a whole heck of a lot of service to a lot of folks by saying, OK, uh, yeah, we're not going to try to do everything. I mean, you know, which all, of course, gets me on the SAE levels and level five and it just drives me nuts. I mean, are you we can, everything? And, uh, I mean, uh, come on. I mean, everything doesn't exist anywhere. Uh, so, um, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in a sense, 
you know, really looking at what you can do. And if I can't go a thousand miles an hour, who in the hell cares? And, and do I really need to see around the corner? Maybe I should just slow down and guess what? That gives, because time is everything to all of this. Time, how much into the future can I look? So that, so that in fact, I can, you know, be safe as you, you know, really said with, 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 with your, your approach. And my goodness, one of the ways to get more time is maybe, you know, in certain places, go a little slower. Is, are our customers really interested in saving 12 seconds? I'm not sure, you know, probably, hey, if it's a difference between 12 seconds and a bus every hour, only who knows when, and of course not when I want to go. Are you joking? Now, for me, that has four cars, I don't know, you know, but the hell with, I mean, I don't know. Talk to me here, Ed. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so, you know, we, we are complete believers in uh, very fine detailed, uh, I forget the term you, you proposed for it, uh, but geofencing on a very granular basis. We green light roads one block at a time. Yeah. We're picking out the routes that that service the most people and that fit the technology the best. Well, it's not routes, it's a network because guess what you can do in a network? You have lots of routes. It's not like, a, it's not routes on a bus, you know, in a bus concept. Oh my goodness, it's it's a string of pearls with four pearls. It's not even Mikimoto with a bunch of them, you know, you, got, <laughs> you know, I mean, but you have a network and the opportunities with a network and the number of OD pairs that you can handle and the service you can deliver, you don't have to have all sorts of infinite redundancies in those. A subset of that, talk to me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's right. If you've got a, a commuter who is looking at that choice between, uh, let's suppose they're lucky and the bus line goes right to their door course it never does but let's let's suppose that it does suppose that but and it comes every 50 minutes and you tell them well actually uh i can give you a ride in in four minutes but you have to walk half a block yeah and guess where that bus rock goes it doesn't go to where you want to go that's right and we get you i mean if you're so lucky that you're going downtown sure but guess where most of the trips are? Guess where most of the jobs are? They really aren't downtown. They're all around here. You want to go from here to here? You want to go from <laughs> Totally agree. <laughs> and, and to zoom out on, on the other part, <clears throat> in, in the end, autonomous cars will be able to go on most or all roads under most or all conditions, or at least maybe not every possible condition, but you know, let's, every sane condition. And a lot of companies seem to, to assume that that is the minimum viable product. They're off building that. And when they get that, they'll be in market. Um, the reality is we will beat them to that capability because sure. we're out in market. We're learning what technology matters, where to make the investments. Our engineers are super motivated and super produ productive because of the technology, because of the application. And so, you know, one of the things that I, 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 I'm passionate about reminding people is the fact that we operate out on roads sub 35 miles per hour today doesn't mean that we're always going to be on roads sub 35 miles per hour today. But by the time there are other, other companies in the market with us, we will have been there for years. 
We will build the relationships. We'll build the trust with our riders. And I think that sets us up to be wildly successful as, as a business and in terms of fulfilling our vision, which is to help transform these cities, making them better places to live. If you look at the distribution of trips in which, you know, which ones require you to go faster than 35 miles an hour on any segment, it is such a small percentage of the market that it's amazing. Oh, I got to do that. Okay. Oh my goodness. I mean, how often do I drive on the New Jersey Turnpike? I mean, yeah. Okay. You've got to, you can't go into business until you can take me to someplace where I have to be on the New Jersey Turnpike. Cut it out. I mean, who <laughs> thinks up these things? I mean, it's like, it's like this morning, the whole my street in front of me here in Princeton, Cleveland Lane, for which I pay enormous taxes to live on, okay, I couldn't walk. The sidewalks and the street had a coat of icing on there. I could not stand. I couldn't even walk, okay? Oh, my goodness, we've got to make the network so that, in fact, Alan can walk or that the car could go. Cut it out. You know, I mean, everywhere, anyway. Well, I think that's actually a really good point um, that one of the things that we get by working and partnering with cities is the ability to integrate more with their, their emergency planning, with their construction. You, meant, you made a great point earlier about uh, the best way to deal with construction is to avoid it. And if we have good partnerships with the cities, which we do, we generally know when construction is going to be there before right. it happens. When there's a weather storm uh, that ices over roads, we can coordinate with the city and figure out which alternative routes we should stick to so that we can be out of the way of the plows. This is- this is. Or maybe you should stay home. The governor in New Jersey always in a whole weather emergency, stay home. Do you have the ability to communicate with your customers via an, an app, Ed? Is that uh, if, if there needs to be changes, things like that? We're, we're in the very early days of this, so I don't want to paint the impression that this level of integration is something that, we, uh, that we've capitalized on everything there. But we provide live data products to our customers, um, and we see, see a lot of opportunity to do more and more of that over time, which, again, is another value add that we understand that we're not just providing the transportation services, we're providing insights into their cities that help them make better decisions, that help their transportation planners look like heroes to their mayors uh, or their governors. That's, that's more value that we can provide in addition to th that helps them help us. Well, we've got a new administration in Washington. Uh, what are some of the things that, that you'd like to see when it comes to helping advance the technology or or regulate the technology? Yeah, I think uh, Brian Walker Smith uh, had a great quote and I'll probably get it wrong, but um, you know, he said that the, the one fear that most AV companies have uh, is, is that instead of a patchwork of, of 50, uh, 50 different sets of regulations, we might end up with one bad set <laughs> that, that applies nationally. Uh, now, of course, I think the, the great outcome would be if we end up with a really good set of nationwide policies and I think we're on that path. I have a lot of confidence in the people that are in office and the policies that they're talking about. They align philosophically and in terms of the values and visions that we have. And I think what we're going to see is more investment in AVs that allows city transportation planners 
who uh, to, to start understanding how AVs could be part of their transportation system. They're not ready to start rolling out thousands of cars next year, but they are ready to start understanding how AVs can inform their long-term planning. And by long-term, I mean, could be five, five years or less. That is a huge opportunity. And I think we're on a, on a really good path with the feds. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, 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 as I look back on what's happened over the past uh, two administrations and so on, I think we've evolved very well. I think, uh, I think uh, people have not rushed into this to put out something just to put out something that, that might have uh, been Brian Walker Smith's legacy on this thing, one bad one. And, and I think you know, a lot of this we don't know and we're all learning and we're all trying and we're all trying to help. And I think that, that, that that's really where, where everybody sits on this. And um, and uh, and I think that uh, that uh, that uh, cities and the planning community needs to take this a little bit more seriously. Unfortunately, the, the beginning of when this was sold, uh, one thought that it was only for for the one percenters to go out there and, and buy their Mercedes F015, who knows what to sip cocktails while they're going down the New Jersey turnpike or something like that and being, you know, who knows what. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's gotten down to the real value of this technology is to provide better mobility to people who have just, uh, it's been very difficult for anybody to provide them good mobility at a reasonable price. And, and this, is, this is, we should be at that level to improve a lot of people's quality of life and, and, um, and uh, focus on that. And that's really where we are, which I think where you are and what your focus has been. This is, this is how we take this technology and take it off the shelves and, and deliver it to improving the, the quality of the society and the value to society, you know, in the, in the short. Yeah, and the joy that comes to me with this, obviously helping people get to, to work, not get fired because they were late, uh, but the, the advantages are multifold. We're stimulating the economy. We're letting people go and get lunch when they want to. We're getting workers to their jobs on time. Replacing workers is also really expensive. So we're not just helping the employees, we're helping the employers. And building up this connectivity of, of transportation that will help people get where they wanna go, when they wanna go there, at the end is going to create lots of opportunities. We're employing lots of people, creating great jobs. There's gonna be a lot of opportunity for everyone to, uh, to, to ride this together. Well, a lot of this is what we talk about uh, at the Princeton Smart Driving Car Summit. Alan, the, the thrust of it is this year and, and yeah. in years past. And we wanna remind people that that continues every Thursday at noon Eastern through the middle of April. Tune in, I mean, Ed's been a part of it, thankfully really terrific. You can find more information to register at smartdrivingcar.com. There's more information there also about becoming a sponsor. Ed, we really want to thank you for, for taking the time with us. Uh, where's the best place for people to go to get more information on all that you and May Mobility are doing? Maymobility.com is a great place to start. I also have essays on Medium if you uh, want to hear me rant about uh, what it means to be a good driver, or uh, what Moore's Law means for AVs. So check me out on Medium, Edwin Olson. 
Terrific. Well, thank you to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO, and more information is available at MOTOETF.com. You can find us at smartdrivingcar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get your smart speaker to play us too. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you so much for listening or watching, and please continue to stay safe. And stay safe. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Ed. Thank Fabulous. You. Thank you. <laughs>